Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss emotions at work. Do they have a place? What can you do about them? We look at why you should be less passionate about your job. We explore the science behind actually being motivated at work and preventing yourself from being burnt out. And we share a powerfully simple emotion management checklist that you can start using right now with our guests, Molly West Duffy and Liz Fosslian. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. 
In our previous episode, we shared how to get over yourself and stop taking things so seriously. We discussed the important relationship between confusion and clarity, and we explored the art of letting go of the need for safety, security, and control in your everyday life so that you can relax into who you've always been with our previous guest, Dr. Mark Epstein. If you want to take things less seriously, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Molly and Liz. Today, we have two exciting guests for the show with a double interview. We have Liz Fosling and Molly West Duffy. They're the co-authors of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. Liz has run workshops for leaders at organizations such as Google, Facebook, Nike, and Stanford on how to create inclusive cultures. Her writing and illustrations have appeared in CNN, The Economist, The Financial Times, and much more. Molly's an organizational designer at global innovation firm IDEO, and her writing has been featured in Fast Company, Quartz, The Stanford Social Innovation Review, Entrepreneur, and many other outlets. She's also taught design courses at Stanford. Molly and Liz, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. Well, uh, we're very excited to have you on the show today. Love, uh, love what the book is about and and the message. And as we were kind of talking about in the pre-show, uh, for listeners who do end up checking the book out, the illustrations which Liz uh, created, there's some hilarious, really, really funny uh, images and, and just encapsulate all kinds of little nuances around office culture and work life and all of these things. So I, I thought the book was really great. Thank you. So I'd love to start out with uh, and maybe just dig into something that you open up pretty early on in the book, which seems to kind of fly in the face of a lot of things we hear or maybe even some people would think about as conventional wisdom, which is this notion of being less passionate about your job. Tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have several new rules of emotions at work that we write about. And the one that we write about in the health chapter is be less passionate about your job, why taking a chill pill makes you healthier. And the idea is that caring too much about our job can actually be a little bit unhealthy. It's great to have passion for your job. We're not saying that, but that going overboard with that is going to make small problems or throwaway remarks feel like huge problems to you. And it's, it's possible to be overly attached to any job. And so by caring a little bit less, we're not saying totally stop caring. We're just saying care about yourself more, carve out the time for yourself, for the people you love, for exercise, and so on. That totally makes sense. And I'm curious, what are some of the strategies that listeners could use? I mean, sometimes, and I think I experience this as well, it's hard sometimes when you get caught up in it and get really frustrated or angry about something that's going on at work. How do you create that distance or start to, as you put it, take a chill pill? Yeah. So one great way is just don't neglect your personal life. I definitely had this earlier in my career where I thought that I just really wanted to get ahead. And so I was just going to work, work, work 24-7. And that's actually not sustainable. Research shows that your productivity kind of drops off a little bit after we've worked 50 hours a week. I think anyone who stared at a computer screen for nine hours in a row, you just feel yourself sagging, your brain kind of turns to mush. So just really making sure to step away from the computer, put your phones away. I think we hear this advice all the time, but it's really nice to have another reminder um, You know that, that will just help you be more creative. Um, another thing is 
to give yourself time away from the inundation of phone calls and meetings um, to really get a lot of work done so that you don't feel so stressed at the end of the day or on the weekends. So one thing that I really like to do is just block off three hours in the afternoon and I say, I can't schedule meetings here. I can't take a phone call. I'm only going to get a lot of work done. Um, I think I hear so often from friends that it's the weekend and finally I feel like I can catch up on my work. And that means that you're just, you don't have any time off, which is super crucial. And then one last thing is if you're a manager, really setting an example. Uh, We love, we've heard examples of companies that institute policies where employees just can't email each other after 7 p.m. Or if it's a holiday, you're, unless it's crucial that you contact someone, just stepping away from email. Um, And I think managers really set the tone for that. So just making sure usually that email doesn't really need to go out at 11 p.m. And so you can schedule it to go out the next morning. Just these really small changes that can create a culture in which people feel a little better taking the breaks that they absolutely need. You bring up a couple points that I think are vitally important and and very interrelated, but also distinct points. One is this idea of carving out time that's not trapped in that constant state of reactivity, of phone calls, emails, requests, demands, and really having a space for proactive and, and creative work. And that's something that I personally, I I try to spend, I have sort of the opposite schedule where I try to set my mornings to be my creative time and then have Mm -hmm. my meetings in the afternoon. But I think it's so vital. And then the second piece of that, that, that's also tremendously important is this, this notion of rest and recovery and, and having, you know, the, the reality that the research shows that there's a, a serious amount of diminishing returns to, to overworking. Yeah, definitely. Um, just one other study that comes to mind on this that I really love is, Researchers looked at the day-to-day fluctuations in people's emotions, and they found that workers are happiest and least stressed on weekends, which I think, you know, no one's surprised there. But they also found out that people who were unemployed or who were not in an office were also most happy on weekends. And what they figured out was that the mechanism behind that was just that they were spending time with their friends who went into offices. So it's also crucial to like carve out time to think, carve out time to be alone, but then keep bringing great people into your life, make time for friends. If someone's in town, you know, it might be worth it to have dinner with them and then, you know, maybe stay up a little later checking your email or or just like make sure that you are cultivating your personal relationships. Um, I think the science shows that having a support network around you really helps prevent burnout, makes you happier. And then that all channels into more productive. And it seems so counterintuitive that spending some time having dinner with friends and instead of you know staring at your screen and, and sending out that email at 9 p.m is it seems like that's less productive and maybe especially it's for Americans but it's so counterintuitive and yet research shows it and the reality is you need that downtime you need that rest and recovery yes completely so I want to come back to this and I kind of hinted at it but there's some of these cultural factors and things like that and how Americans differ from other countries but Before we dig into that, one of the other topics that I found to be really interesting was uh, was motivation and inspiration. What do people get wrong about motivating themselves or inspiring themselves? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think a lot of times we think about motivation as external factors 
So obviously we want to get paid to work and that makes a big difference, but you never really know like how much can you motivate yourself? Are you unmotivated because your work seems pointless or does your work feel pointless because you're unmotivated? And it's just so hard to figure that out. And we write about in the book that you really can inspire yourself and emotions are a big part of this, that your emotions can create and sustain your own motivation. And so we talk about why you might be lacking motivation. So one thing is that you don't have control over your work. And so the emotion of feeling like you lack control can make you demotivated. And even if you can't change how much autonomy your boss gives you, there are small things that you can do, even if you have like a micromanager to just give yourself a little bit more control. So you can focus on small wins, you can ask your manager to define the outcomes rather than the processes, like these small tweaks that that we can all do. Tell me more about some of these things you can do to take back control and feel like you have control over your work. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, the first thing is, is just thinking about how can I have control over the processes to get towards end results? Your boss has an end result in mind. But for example, you know, I work in design and a lot of times our clients come in and, and they say, here's what we want out of this project. But they don't always get to say how we do it. In fact, we have a lot of control over the process that we use, the design process that we use. And so we find that really satisfying when we come to work. Um, so what are the ways that you can say, I'm going to get you to the right outcome. Can I decide how I spend the day, the week, the month to get there? And then the research shows there's actually great research by Harvard Business School professor named Teresa Amabile, and she calls it the progress principle. So she says that even if you just take these like very small steps every day, very incremental progress, so like you sent an email that you had been putting off or you read a report that was on the bottom of your stack, that will make you feel like you did something that day and will actually energize you. And so you have to remind yourself like these small goals do connect to a larger purpose to work towards. So I love those two. Those are both great strategies. And uh, Teresa Mabale is actually a previous guest on the show as well. So we'll make sure to throw that oh, interview uh, into the show notes yeah. for listeners who want to check that out. Another thing, coming back to this idea of motivation, what are so lack of control is one of the things. What are some of the other factors that you discovered that sabotage motivation? Yeah. So the next one is that you don't find your work meaningful. So this is, you know, when you're sort of like, oh, just working on email or, you know, working on a data set or something, it's really important to understand the broader impact of your work and studies show that that does make you more productive. So Wharton professor Adam Grant, we love, he did this study where he had workers at the university's call center um, who were doing scholarship fundraising. He actually had them meet with some of the scholarship recipients at the university. And it was like a five-minute meeting, but they understood how much their efforts had affected these students' lives. And the scholars who had spoken with the scholarship recipients at the end of the month, raised twice as much as those who did not. So mindset really, really matters. Another thing is that you're not conceptualizing work as a place of learning. So sometimes we feel like, oh, okay, we went to college, we got a job, so learning is done. Now we're just in the workplace. But actually, you know, one of the best ways to learn is through action, and that can be a really big motivator. And so 
thinking about what are the side projects you want to work on or who are the coworkers who have different skills that you can tap into to learn a new skill from. Super important. And then lastly, you don't enjoy working with your coworkers. So we talk about in the book how like, you know, okay, all of this can matter, but then sometimes there are some mornings where you're just like, okay, forget meaning, forget autonomy. I'm just like irritated to be at work right now. And people who have friends at work always are going to find their jobs more satisfying, even in those moments. Um, so understanding, you know, which work friends you can tap into to get that little motivation on the mornings when you need it. Super important. So what are some of the strategies to bring learning back into the workplace? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I think a great one is thinking about swapping skills. So finding a time with a coworker where they can teach you something and you can teach them something and it's win-win. Starting side projects. So Liz gives this example where she wanted to learn coding basics. So she actually built her personal website from scratch and it looks awesome. And she taught herself how to code. And the important thing here is that it's it's uniquely yours. You're not doing it for anyone else. And so you're going to have to go back to our first thing. You're going to have complete autonomy over that. Um, and then lots of organizations do have ways to learn within the organization. Um, so looking for that through your learning and development organization or any part of the organization that you can find that in. All great suggestions and, and good strategies to solve the puzzle of workplace motivation, which, which can certainly be a challenge. Another really interesting topic that you, you bring up and discuss in the book was this idea of emotions and how they interact with decision-making. Should good decisions be decisions that are completely devoid of emotion? Yeah. So I love how you phrase that because nothing can ever be devoid of emotion. Um, I think it's a really incorrect belief that we hold that you have rationality on one side and then you have emotions on the other or kind of the, the bigger thing that I think a lot of people still believe about work is that you can check your feelings at the door, which is just we are emotional creatures in any circumstance. It's biologically impossible to stop feeling emotion. So that said, given that emotions are going to be in your decision-making process, you have to acknowledge that they're there. And that then allows you to filter out which of these emotions that I'm feeling are useful and which are not. So in the book, we describe those as irrelevant emotions and relevant emotions. And so to give two quick examples, one of each, an irrelevant emotion is one that does not have anything to do with the decision, but likes to stick its tentacles into your decision. So imagine, let's say that I'm stuck in traffic for two hours. Uh, I'm going to be irritable. I'm going to just be really grumpy when I get into the office. And so if I'm then making a big decision of, you know, even let's something, something as big as should we hire this person, I might come to that decision and just be, you know, there's research that shows that when we're angry, we're more likely to rely on stereotypes. We make faster decisions. That's not the state that you want to be in when you're making a choice. So really understanding in that moment, okay, I'm upset and I'm upset because I sat in traffic. And so I need to take half an hour before I go to this hiring decision. Super important because if I'm not acknowledging the state that I'm in, it's going to affect the choice I make. Now, a relevant emotion is one that is directly tied to the decision at hand. So examples of that are regret, 
if you think about, let's say you're thinking about taking a new job and the idea of not taking that job fills you with regret, that's relevant. That's, you know, you shouldn't base your decision on that emotion, but it should be a data point that you factor in. And then another relevant emotion, kind of my favorite one that we that we touch upon in the book is envy. Um, and I think envy is this thing that we often think of as bad and that's stigmatized, especially at work. And, you know, Molly and I do not endorse you know, letting your envy turn into bitterness or having it affect how you act towards someone. But it's, again, one of these things that you should hold up to the light and examine because envy contains really valuable information. One of the people that we interviewed was Gretchen Rubin, who's written The Four Tendencies and The Happiness Project. And she told us that at some point she was a lawyer and she was thinking about her next career move. And so she looked in her school's alumni magazine. And when she read stories about lawyers who had excellent careers, she thought that was cool. And maybe she felt a little burst of motivation. But when she read about alumni who had amazing writing careers, she said she actually felt physically sick with envy. And to her, that was just a really clear sign that she probably wanted to go into writing. And so then that helped her make the decision of, I should maybe think less about law in the future and look into how could I make a career out of writing, which is clearly something that I love because I want the careers of people who have done that successfully. Two really, really good points. This idea that emotions are inevitable and that the right way we have to integrate them is to is to build them into our decision making and take the information that we're getting from them. You know, one of my favorite quotes about emotion is that emotions are data, but not direction. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's mm. very in line with our with our point in the book. But even something out, you know, you kind of threw out anger and I don't disagree that it, that it oftentimes could be a terrible emotion for, for decision making, but even anger could be a relevant and useful emotion. I sometimes feel like anger is great fuel when you need to make changes and, and really aggressively mm. change things. When I sometimes if I'm angry and, and something something completely different has angered me, I'll then turn that to whether it's projects or my calendar or something like that. And I'll just take a buzzsaw out and start hacking away all of these things and yeah uh, you know it can be it can be really productive to kind of say but you have to have that self-awareness at the beginning right to check in and say hey i'm angry how can i make this productive instead of making it unproductive totally i, I think anxiety is similar too so i am probably more anxious than most people and so that often means that i worry about like am I making the right decision or even separately, am I going to do well on this? Am I going to meet the deadline? And that actually does, is very motivational for me. I'm usually able to then say, I have all this energy. And we talk to in the book about this concept of reappraisal, which is that the physiological kind of symptoms of anxiety, which is elevated heart rate, you know, your palms start to sweat. They're very similar, almost identical to excitement. And so if you're able to tell yourself, I'm not anxious, I'm excited, you can channel that productively and suddenly just have a burst of motivation and and again start just like checking things off your to-do list. So that's I love this concept that you brought up about taking these things that we might normally see as scary or bad emotions and should suppress and actually figuring out, well, how could this be useful to me? And also I need to kind of examine why I'm feeling this and then again address the need behind that and turn this all into productivity and then happiness and well-being. I think it's all kind of part of the same big cycle. Tell me a little bit more about reappraisal and how can somebody concretely start to actually apply that idea? 
Yeah, so this comes from HBS, STEM professor Allison Woods, and she found that, again, like I said, sorry, Allison Wood Brooks, she found that when we experience anxiety, a really great way is to actually just say out loud in that moment, I'm excited. So if you are, let's say you're about to give a speech, um, this is something, again, in the research, a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. And so if you feel your heart rate elevating, you feel yourself getting short of breath, that also happens when you're extremely excited, when you're about to tell someone great news or you know, if you're waiting for a surprise birthday party to yell surprise, you're also going to have an elevated heart rate. You might get a little short of breath. And so really just saying, again, it's as simple as saying, I'm not stressed, I'm excited. The research there does show that people who do that end up performing better um, when they're able to reappraise their emotions and, and redirect that energy into a positive direction. Very cool. And it, it, it's a great strategy and, and another really thoughtful way of thinking about how to integrate emotion into, into performance and into our work lives. Uh, another thing that you shared in the chapter on emotion that I thought was really important was this decision-making checklist. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to include a checklist. Yeah. So we love checklists and Atul Gawande famously uh, wrote about how they save lives. You know, pilots and surgeons use them to make sure that they're not skipping important steps. Um, so for this one, we called it a manager mind checklist. And I think it's it's really important, I think, especially for, for people like me and Liz, where, you know, we do have a fair amount of anxiety. And so it's really nice to say, okay, I'm going to go through this checklist that is a very like standard operating procedure to help me do this thing, which can feel really daunting and irrational and, and emotional. And even though, you know, we just talked about how it's learned from motion, it still can be helpful to go through this process. So just briefly, we recommend writing out your options. And usually when we, when we think we just have two options, you actually have more options. And this is something I constantly have to remind myself of where I get into very black and white thinking. And it's like, okay, I can either stay at my current job or take a new job. And there's probably a third option out there, which is like stay at my current job and ask for a promotion or stay at my current job and work on this side project, like writing a book. So there's always more than two options. So write them out, list everything that you're feeling, and those can be relevant or irrelevant emotions. Go through that process of regulating each emotion that is not relevant. And then link the remaining emotions that are relevant to specific options. So notice if they're tied to a specific choice. Like, Are you most excited when you imagine yourself picking option A and you're most afraid when you think about picking option B? And then ask why. So instead of saying, what am I afraid of? Thinking about why am I afraid? And that gets you a lot deeper and and helps you understand a little bit more. We also recommend figuring out your decision-making tendency. Uh, So there's, you might've talked about this on your podcast in the past, but there's a famous study where there's two types of people in the world. There's satisficers and maximizers. And satisficers are usually happy with their decision when they just pick it. It's just like, here are the requirements that I have. I'm going to meet those requirements and I'm going to be happy about it. Whereas maximizers are just like, I want to have the optimal options. I'm going to go through everything. Um, And so 
tends to be that satisfiers are a little bit happier, but it's not that one is better than the other. And so just understanding your decision-making tendency is really important so that you can know if you're a maximizer, you might go into inconclusive second-guessing of everything. And then run your thinking by another person. So find a friend or a colleague who you can think about your options. A lot of times verbalizing those out loud forces you to synthesize that information and they can help you identify biases. After you've done all of that, you can make a decision knowing that you've gone through the checklist and you can be sure that it was the right one. (laughs) Great suggestions. And I love all of those strategies. Obviously, uh, Checklist Manifesto, Atoga Wande's book is, is a great read. But I, you know, one of the most powerful things that I think you just shared is kind of all just sort of hidden in that cascade of wisdom was this idea that you always have more options than you think you do. Mm. Outside of this whole context of decision making, I think that's a really powerful mental model and, and idea. Yeah. And like I said, I have to remind myself of this all the time. And I think the best outcomes have usually been not the first two things that I have thought of, but it's a third or a fourth thing. You know, it's like you can have your cake and eat it too. Like if you want two things and they seem in opposition, how can you somehow have them both? And you may not be able to have them both at the same time, but you could say, I'm going to have this this year and the other one next year or this during my work day and this in the weekends or something like that. But how can you reframe it for yourself? Yeah, that kind of thinking, you know, for I hate to use this term, but sort of thinking outside the box, nonlinear thinking, all of, all of that stuff. That's something I've been personally really interested in for a long time. And I, I've, I've deeply studied the, the science behind it and the neuroscience around it and tried to develop and build that skill set because I think it's so powerful once you can start to step out and realize there's always so many more options than you think that you have. Totally. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. 
Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to segue and dig into some of the communication strategies and and team strategies that you talk about in the book. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the concept of psychological safety and how that fits in with uh, the way we should interact with others. Yeah. So psychological safety is when people feel they can suggest ideas, admit mistakes, and take risks without being embarrassed by the group. And if you think about it, it makes sense that this is the most crucial part of a team. There was a big study at Google called Project Aristotle a few years ago where researchers went in and collected all this data on different teams and then were trying to see if they could predict which teams would be most successful. And they were looking at things like, is there a senior person on the team? What's the average tenure of all the members? Do we have introverts and extroverts? And what they found again, was it's not really who's on the team that matters, it's how the team works together. And so the teams that had psychological safety where people could sit in a brainstorm and just feel like they could say whatever was on their mind and that they could flag issues, those were the teams that outperformed. And again, it it sounds so obvious when you hear it, but it's just still so many places are not actively working to cultivate that kind of environment. And so in the book, we give a few ways to really make sure that people, that you're getting the most out of all of your employees. One thing else that I want to say as well is that when we think about diverse teams, I think generally there is a correct notion that when you have more diversity, you're going to have more creative solutions. But again, that outcome is contingent upon psychological safety. So if you have five people in the room and they all come from different backgrounds and they have different skill sets and they kind of view the world through different lenses, that's all great. Like you you want all those things. That's why you have a team because people bring different things to the table. But if you're not creating a space in which each of those people feel like they can share everything that makes them unique, you might as well just have like 
five robots in the room because you're just not going to get everything within each of those people. So in the book, a few ways to create psychological safety. So the first is really simple. And this you can do if you're a manager, you can do if it's your first day, which is just to positively reinforce someone taking a small risk. So if someone says in a meeting, hey, here's a potential issue I think could come up that we should think about and be prepared for, just take like the five seconds to say, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's really important that we all come, you know, like flag things that we think might be issues. Um, so that little thing can really make a big difference. And then a more, a more fun thing that we suggest is teams can also host bad ideas brainstorms. So this is just to help people get goofy around each other, uh, kind of takes the competitive edge off because it's no longer who's the smartest. It's just really like throw out horrible ideas. So it's a great way to get people to feel comfortable around one another. Also, often you'll find that in the worst idea, there's like some nugget of wisdom and it might actually spawn into something cool. And then a third one, the last one, that I'll cover here is to use generative language. So instead of shutting ideas down immediately or saying that'll never work, if you think that it's cool and it wouldn't take a long time to prototype or try it out, maybe just saying like, hey, let's try it. Or just saying something like, yes, and instead of countering with but always, um, I know that's a, a big thing at Pixar, the animation studio, where, where you're supposed to always respond with yes, and, um, because it's, it's just a nice way of, again, not instantly rebutting someone's idea, but building off of it. You know, I've never come across the term, sort of all of these ideas categorized under the, the moniker of psychological safety, but I'm a huge advocate, huge proponent of all of these these notions and the and the fact that whenever you create an environment where people are open and transparent, willing to admit their mistakes and failures, willing to challenge anybody's ideas, it's so important and and really crystallizes and leads to some of the best possible decisions. Absolutely. And there's also research that shows that when we feel kind of safe around our colleagues. So a great example is LinkedIn. A few years ago they started adding questions into their employee engagement survey. And one of the questions was, uh, I feel that someone at work cares about me. And the other question was, when I make a mistake, I feel safe. So it's, you know, the world isn't going to end. I'm not going to get immediately fired. And those two questions ended up being the biggest predictors of how long someone was going to stay. And so when we do feel a sense of psychological safety, we're happier on the team and we want to stay at the company longer. We're more loyal. And again, that translates like everything good is correlated with that happiness, well-being. So it's, you know, you have the short term, like you're going to get more innovative ideas out of people. But the, also the long term is that you're just going to have like happier colleagues that you get to keep for longer. I think there's an illustration in the book where one of the worst things is when your best friend at work quits. So if you want your best friend to stay, positively reinforce them when they take a small risk. Great suggestions. And and I, I want to continue to implement these in my own life and work and, and try to create those environments as much as possible. One of the other ideas that I found really interesting in in that same chapter was this notion of, and I think there was a whole grid that kind of outlined each of these, but the, the notion of task conflict in particular and kind of the different ways that people can be in conflict because it's it's not necessarily always over the same thing. They explain that idea to the listeners and, and tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah, task conflict and relationship conflict. So the grid that you're mentioning is one of Liz's amazing illustrations and 
the uh, different axes are, I like you and I hate you, and I like your idea and I hate your idea. (laughs) So relationship conflict is, I like your idea and I hate you. And task conflict is, I like you and I hate your idea. So we'll talk about task conflict first. So task conflict is when we like each other, but we are clashing about something due to the content of the work. And Liz and I had this a fair amount, actually, when we were writing this book. So we give the example of, I like to very quickly write an initial draft and send it into our editor to get immediate feedback. Whereas Liz really likes to mull over sections and send the editor a more polished version. And, you know, there was just a lot of conflict of like, I would say, okay, let's send it in. And Liz would be like, no, I need another week. And I would be sitting there sort of stewing. And over time, we realized that this actually is really helpful that we have this difference because Liz makes sure that we don't send something out that's half-baked and we're going to regret. And I make sure that we are not spending two weeks obsessing over syntax. But it's it's just really important to talk this over and, and figure out what is the tension and how can we actually do well with it. So team, every team is going to have conflict, but you have to create the structures that make sure it stays productive. So the example we give, and Liz mentioned Pixar, they have this thing where they review all of their daily uh, draft of the films and they're encouraged to make comments that are about the shot and not the animator. So it's keeping it to about the task and not the relationship. Another example that we give is writing your own user manual. So if you have different working styles that are going to clash, one thing that you can do is write a guide, like a how to work with me guide. And you can answer questions like, you know, what are your quirks? What drives you nuts? What do you value in the people you work with? And then small things like what time do you want to get to work? You know, do you take a lunch break? all of those things. And then share those with the people that you work with and really take the time to do this. I I often say one of the biggest things I think that we don't make time for in the workplace is the time to talk about potential conflict and how we'll deal with it when it comes up. It can be awkward, uh, but it's just really important to set aside time to do that. And then relationship conflict. So Liz and I think Fully did not have as much of this, but relationship conflict would be if Liz had said to me, I think it's a really dumb idea to send this chapter in right now. And I would be personally offended by that because she's saying that I as a person am dumb. And so relationship conflict is, is much harder if it gets to that um, because it can really hijack a relationship. The way to deal with this is sometimes by simply hearing each other out. So there's two different types of people. There's seekers and avoiders and seekers are going to want to engage in conflict and avoiders would really rather do anything than deal with confrontation. So it's important to understand which you are and then just share that with each other and hear each other out about the style that you're going into a team with and how it's going to affect the work. And then I think in addition to like trying to preserve psychological safety to remember that, you know, sometimes if you're having a conflict with a coworker, the best thing might be to do nothing. Like if you keep getting into the same issue with them, just take a deep breath, walk away, realizing that there's only so much you can do. You can't change another person. And so how can you sort of detangle yourself from that situation? I love that suggestion. And it seems very counterintuitive, but and I totally agree. Sometimes doing nothing 
is the best strategy. Absolutely. So I want to dig into one of my favorite kind of phrases from the book that I, I, I personally really like this, but I, I feel like may rub some people the wrong way. The, the subtitle of one of the chapters is this idea that your feelings aren't facts. Tell me about that and why you decided to use that language and, and what does that mean? Yeah. So this is from our chapter on communication. And the idea here is that we often react to one another based on these assumptions that we never bother to look at more carefully. And this is so crucial. It's really important to explore your assumptions and kind of create a space with someone else where they can give you their perspective because the words we say are not always what we mean. And so that's, it's just like so rife for miscommunication, not to mention, I think, We have a whole section in the chapter on communication about digital communication, because when you just have text and there's no nonverbal gestures, you don't have the tone of someone's voice, I think then it's just even harder to really understand what someone's words mean. So just to give a quick example of what we really mean by your feelings aren't facts, um, I had a colleague and when he first started, I realized that anytime I would ask him a question, he would start speaking extremely slowly and enunciate every word. And I took that as like, this guy thinks that I'm a complete moron. (laughs) I was just, I remember being so irritated every time that he would slowly answer one of my questions. And so a few weeks later, we all were going out to dinner, the team, and, and he and I were getting along really well. And so I just brought it up in a very not aggressive way. I was just like, hey, do you realize that when I ask you a question, you start speaking really slowly? And he said, he was like, yes, I kind of am aware of that, but it's just because I want to be really sure that I don't sound dumb in front of you. Um, And so that's so different than my perception. It's actually the complete opposite. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And so I had just been sitting there for weeks stewing on this when in fact, I should have just been like, you know, I wasn't creating psychological safety for him. And so I think it's just a wonderful example of what we say in the book is really to talk about your emotions without getting emotional. And so the the formula, so for people who just want to have like a sentence that they can say in a situation like that is a great one is when you do X, I feel Y. And what's wonderful about this is that it's simply about starting a conversation um, by saying that you are not creating a perpetrator and a victim. It's just saying, here's what's happening. Can we explore this together? Um, So I think anytime that you're in conflict with someone, it's great. So first of all, I would say first biggest thing, which which we've talked about now in decision making and we've talked about in conflict is just calm down. Um, So some piece of advice that we have is don't just do something, stand there. And so I think a consistent theme throughout the book is like, if you feel yourself having a very emotional response to something, it's totally fine. And usually the best thing to just take a moment, maybe take 15 minutes, go for a walk around the block. um, Because once that sort of spike has gone down a little, you'll also be able to just approach the, the problem and find a solution much faster. So we say in the book, if you have an issue with someone, the kind of the three steps to take are the first is just to label your feelings. Um, so you would say, so in, in this case, I might say with this guy, I'm, I'm frustrated, or maybe even like, I'm hurt because I think he thinks I'm, you know, not as smart as he is. The second is really understand where those feelings are coming from. And then the third is 
feel calm enough to have a conversation about your emotions again without getting emotional. So I think those three steps combined with a sentence of when you X, I feel Y um, are really crucial to starting a path of exploration with someone else so that you can get the full picture of what's going on and make sure that you're not just sitting there having a strong emotional reaction based on something that's completely inaccurate. There was another great illustration in the book that had, and I don't remember if it's in this chapter or not, but it had kind of, uh, it was like waves of anger and it was, you know, when the event happens and then, you know, later on, and then it was like when you should talk about it. And it was, that was when it was completely, you know, the, the anger level was completely gone basically. Yeah. Yeah. We say we are just very against, you know, there's kind of this cliche or traditional advice that says never go to bed angry. Um, and I think Molly and I both are always like, go to bed angry. It's totally fine. Uh, you'll probably wake up. You'll probably have a clearer vision for what you want to say. And you're probably also less likely in that moment to say something that you really deeply regret later. So you touched on this, but I'd love to briefly dig into some best practices for digital communication and even, you know, something that's increasingly prevalent, remote working and how all this kind of applies to that as well. Mm -hmm. For digital communication, you have a couple of suggestions. The first being that when you're first getting to know someone, you should always default to richer communication channels. So ideally in person, um, but if not, if you're remote, default to video is really important. There, The research shows that there's so many emotional cues that come from body language and facial expressions that we miss when uh, we can't see the person. So starting with that, and I think the other reason that's really important is that when we're texting or emailing, especially with people we don't know well, or especially with people who are more senior than us, like our bosses, that we are much more likely to interpret ambiguity as negative. So if you get an email that has no emotion in it, that's like, can we chat in an hour, you know, from your boss, you are immediately going to assume that something bad is going to happen. You know, she didn't say good or bad. I mean, it's just a check-in, but without a smiley face or a like, you know, it's no big deal. Or if you saw her in person, a smile, you are going to assume that it's negative. And that's just something that we do as humans. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you are writing emails or slacks or texts or whatever, to do what we call as an emotional proofread of the message. So there's a great example of the chief talent officer at Ogilvy Group. He does this thing where he asks his employees to raise their hand if they have ever successfully diffused an emotional issue via email. If no one raises their hand. And then he says, have you ever inflamed an issue via email? And everyone puts their hand up. So it's just like we can so easily get ourselves into trouble before you hit send, reread to make sure your message is clear and you can you are conveying the intended tone. Some people even send an email to themselves so that they can see what it feels like to have that appear in their inbox and make sure that the emotion is clear. Related to that, use emojis. You don't want to use a ton of emojis, especially if you don't know the other person well, because that can undermine your professionalism. But when you know them somewhat, emojis really can help express tone and send emotional cues. Um, so that's super important. Another thing is to realize that typos send a message. So really interesting study was done by this researcher, Andrew Brodsky, 
And he says that typos are emotional amplifiers. So if you send an email that is already a little bit critical or angry, and there are typos in it, that is going to amplify that message. And so the receiver is going to imagine that you were like hammering out an email in a blind rage, <laughs> be like, oh, this person is really angry. So the same thing if it's, it's positive, but obviously that's not quite an issue. So just making sure that your typos aren't amplifying an emotion that you already are sending. And then lastly, don't use email when you need a yes. So research shows that an in-person request is more than 30 times as successful as an emailed one. For some reason, when we get an email request, we see it as non-urgent or especially if you don't know the person, we see it them as like a little bit untrustworthy. And if you do have to do email negotiation, it does help to sort of schmooze with the person beforehand before you send the email. Let me pause there. That was a lot for digital communication. Yeah, that was great. And and one of my favorite stats from the whole book was that stat around you're you're 30 times more likely to get a yes if you if you use in person as opposed to email. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you asked about remote workers, um, which is something that is increasingly common. And Liz actually does a little bit more remote work than I do, so she can feel free to jump in here. But I think. One thing that's, as I mentioned, super important, thinking about defaulting to video. So this matters even more with remote. So Trello, which is a project management software company, even if just one person is remote, everyone on that team gets on a video call. Super important because the person who's remote is going to have a tendency to not feel included if they're like, calling into this whole conference room of people who are chatting. And so it's just much easier if everyone gets on their computers and does the video together. And Liz and I had this happened to us. We, I'm in New York and our editor's in New York and she lives in Berkeley. And when we had our first meeting with her, I was there in person and she was calling in and we had this disaster of a meeting where like Liz couldn't get into the conference line. And then halfway through somehow she cut out. So she'd been saying all this stuff. We couldn't hear her. So we were just talking over her. Um, and then she tried to call my cell, but I had no service and, and we just kept on chatting and she just felt, you know, terrible. I'll let her jump in and say how she felt. But we then decided to default to video after that. Yeah. I think that's a, just like a great example of just the importance of, again, like Molly was saying, richer communication. Uh, you know, if, if I had been on video during that, I think they would have seen me like talking or just getting really frustrated or the screen would have gone blank and they would have immediately known that something was wrong. I just, I'll make one other point about remote work because as Molly mentioned, I have worked remotely like for a few years. And I think the biggest thing is just realizing that it's as important to positively reinforce remote workers to make them feel like they're part of the organization as it is to do that for the people that you're in person with. It is a little harder to do that for remote workers. So I think it's so easy if you're never on a video conference with someone, if you're never asking them a little bit about their personal lives, it's really easy to just start to see them as like this really, this name that keeps popping up in your inbox and just like this robot coming out of nowhere that keeps emailing me. So just what some companies whose workers are all remote do is they have a Slack channel where people can just, as they see fit, not everyone has to participate, but they can share like pictures of their personal lives, give each other updates. Some companies also 
have pair calls, which is remote workers can opt into this pair call program. And so every two weeks, they're randomly assigned with another remote worker. And then on the calendar as part of work, you have an hour to talk about that person or talk with that person, but you can't talk about work. So it's a really lovely way of just getting to know someone, again, seeing them face to face. And back to Molly's points about digital communication, once you have established a relationship with someone and you know a little bit more about them, you feel a connection, it's just going to smooth any communication after that so much. Like, you know, if if my mom emails me, I have a pretty good sense of what she means just because I know her so well in person um, versus if someone I've never had a conversation outside of work with emails me, I'm much more likely to read into that something that I shouldn't be reading into it. Great suggestions. And, and that story was really, uh, really insightful as well. For listeners who want to concretely implement some of the things we've talked about. Uh, I know we've, we've gone over a lot of really concrete and specific strategies on here. What would be one piece of homework that you would give to them as a starting point or an action item to begin to execute on some of these ideas? I think a great one is to start by when you're feeling strongly, sitting down and writing down everything you're feeling. And a lot of, I think, what helps you do that is just to expand your emotional vocabulary. So in the book, we talk about this concept called emotional granularity, which is when you're able to very finely pinpoint what you're feeling. So instead of saying, I feel bad, you're able to say, I feel frustrated, or I feel a lack of caffeine. <laughs> um, so again, it's research shows that when we're able to accurately describe what we're feeling, it's much easier for us to regulate those feelings. So again, that's correlated with happiness, well-being. So I think really taking the time to reflect, think about what you're feeling, and then something that's so important, and I think like an absolute next step, is to identify the need behind those feelings. So an example a few years ago, I was leading a design project and a few days ahead of a deadline, I found myself just getting so irritated with everyone. So I went for a walk around the block and I was able to say, okay, I'm very irritable. And then what I realized was driving that was just anxiety around meeting the deadline. And the need behind both of those feelings was that I just needed to know that we were going to hit the deadline. And so that probably involved cutting some stuff out of the project, but I was able to go back to the team and say, what's everyone working on? What are the non-essential things we can cut so that we make sure that the thing we really need to deliver, we're able to deliver it on time and in with high quality bar. And once we'd had that conversation and I felt assured, I was no longer irritable. And so it's really like, I think it's so important for people, identify what you're feeling, identify where that feeling is coming from. And that allows you then to address the need. I think it's also great in organizations, you know, a lot of people work in companies where you probably can't just walk into the office and be like, I have all these feelings and I want to talk about them with everyone. So if you're able to identify the need behind your feelings, it also allows you to kind of discuss your emotions at the workplace without necessarily having to say like, I'm feeling these emotions. So again, when I was able to say, I would just like to know that we're all on the same page, that we're going to be able to hit this deadline. I was kind of talking about my feelings, but it was still presented in a way that like fit kind of the emotional norms of that organization. That's such a powerful idea that finding the need behind the emotions. I really love that suggestion. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of dealing with emotion, but sometimes the best way, especially when it comes to stress, to deal with stress is just to figure out like what's stressing me out. And if I can do something about it, I should just do that. And then it's remarkable how quickly that alleviates stress. So for listeners who want to find both of you and your work online, what are the best places for them to do that? We have a website. It is Liz and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E dot com. And on that, we have actually a whole tab of resources. So we have some practical guides. We have e-cards, which have Liz's amazing illustrations. And we have some great assessments. And that was going to be my recommendation is to take, we have an assessment called How Do You Express Your Emotion? And you can go on and see if you are an under-emoter, an even-emoter, or an over-emoter. I think that's really helpful. I'm an under-emoter, which means that I don't always share all of my emotions. And so I have been challenging myself in the last couple of months to get a little bit more vulnerable, especially as a leader of a team, sharing more of my emotions. Um, And we give tips for for all of those in the assessments. You can also follow us on Instagram. We're at Liz and Molly there. And Liz is posting amazing illustrations, super fun. Um, And also on Twitter, at Liz and Molly there. Well, Liz, Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this knowledge, some incredible insights, some great practical, tactical strategies. It's been a pleasure to have both of you on here. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much, Matt. Really great. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 